he had been controlling himself for so long, had come so far, but he just couldn't control himself anymore. Everyone was asleep, so no one would even know. Internally, he was struggling, being pulled in every direction, unable to make a decision. On the one hand, there was a convincing and confident voice persuading him to do it, to give in to the urge. If you eat it, it will feel so good. But on the other hand, there was a quieter and more withdrawn voice attempting to use reason and judgment. But this is ridiculous. It's wrong, destructive, childish, just foolish. You've done this before and you've hated yourself afterwards. He felt disgusted, ashamed. You know that you'll feel the very same way in about five minutes if you do it again. This has never ended well for you. As a bead of sweat drips down the side of his cheek, and he stares at the chocolate cake, he tries to weigh his options. Before he can really get a handle on the situation, the convincing and confident voice pipes up again, this time sounding even more sure than the first time. Just think about how good it will feel. You only live once. Who really cares about the consequences? How can you not do this? And suddenly, that second voice stops giving good answers. Or maybe he's just not listening anymore. Now, he only sees one side of the equation. He lets desire cloud his judgment. With one final expression of will, he gives in to temptation. If he had been watching someone else do this same act, he would have been screaming at the top of his lungs for this fool to stop this insanity but he has become blind by desire, lured into the trappings of instant gratification, and has fallen prey to his lower self. A moment later, he awakens from this intellectual slumber. He regains awareness, and as his higher self predicted, he looks in the mirror with total disgust and revulsion, promising himself it won't happen again. He can't bear the hypocrisy, the two-facedness. And for a moment, he does not look at himself from within, but from without, as an onlooker, an observer, and he does not like what he sees. Maybe he has some chocolate cake on his mouth after breaking his diet. Or, or maybe it was something else. The details aren't so important. What is important is to realize that this is the story of life. Struggle. Sometimes with small defeats. Other times small victories. Most of life is fighting for inches. We take a step forward. Then two steps back. Three steps forward, another one back. Life tends not to be about giant leaps or falls, but rather a game of inches. And this being the case, we need to take a deeper look 
at the events in this week's parsha. The Chet the sin of the golden calf, is perhaps the most infamous event in the Torah. A sin compared to the original sin of Adam Harishwa. Yet, what is so striking about this sin is not only the act itself as much as the timing. The Jewish people had just experienced the miracles of Yetzirah and Shrine leaving Egypt. The wonders of Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, and had just received the Torah from Hashem Himself. They were elevated to the angelic state of Adam Harishon before he ate from the Eitzimahs. And they were therefore able to eat the angelic food of manna, which the Rambam explains was crystallized shechina. As Rashi quotes, even a maidservant that Kriyas Yamsuf received prophecy and a higher level of understanding of Hashem than Yechazka, who saw an image of Hashem himself. If so, then how could the Jewish people commit such a terrible sin at this moment? Even worse, they not only committed the sin immediately following Ma'an Torah, but in the very same spot, the very place where we married Hashem, Chazal. The sages compare this to a kala, a bride, who betrays her husband right under the chuppah itself, right under the wedding cake. As the Pasuk says, they strayed quickly. How could Christ Israel fall so rapidly and drastically right after Mountain Torah? How do we make sense of this? Well, this requires a much lengthier discussion. Let's briefly explain the sin of idolatry. You see, many think of idolatry as the worship of statues and inanimate objects. However, anyone with even a small ounce of intellect can see that a piece of wood or stone carved out by man himself could not possibly hold any power. The deeper understanding behind the worship of idolatry, as the Rambam explains in Mishnah Torah, in the first paragraph of the Zara, and the Ramchal explains there, Hashem, and many others explain as well, is the worshiping of intermediaries, instead of sourcing yourself back to Hashem himself. Hashem created the world in such a way that there are levels of reality. Hashem is the ultimate source. And the intermediaries receive energy and shafa from him and then manifest it into the world. Avodah Zarah is when you don't recognize Hashem as the source, but rather trace things back only as far as the intermediaries. The statues that people worship are merely tangible representations of the higher forces they are serving. So what's the purpose of this idol worship, what compels a person to commune with the intermediaries rather than going to the ultimate root Hashem himself? The answer is simple. Why go back to the source when you can get everything you need from a middleman, especially if the middleman demands so little in return? True service of Hashem means living a life of obligation, of chiv. Whereas Idolatry is a life of ease and freedom. It can be compared to a man who, who walks into a large store 
and sees an expensive item he desperately desires. He isn't willing to pay the $1,500 which the price tag says, so he walks over to the cashier and makes a proposition. I'll slip you $150 and you can quietly pass over the goods. In other words, this man wants the goods, but he isn't willing to pay for them. Instead, he tries to cut a deal with the millman. So too, idolatry was man's way of receiving the goods without paying for them. Why go all the way to Hashem to ask for rain, health, prosperity, success, when that would demand a life of obligation and chiv? Instead, they just went to the intermediaries. But avoiding Hashem in this way, avoiding the truth, is the absolute worst sin in the entire Torah. The prohibition against Avodah is the first losase, first negative commandment in the Aseris Hadibros. And as many commentaries explain, it is the very root of all other negative commandments. All other sins are merely a subcategory of idolatry, whereby you serve your own selfish needs and desires instead of sourcing yourself back to Hashem. The sin of the golden calf was the worshipping of idolatry. Which means that the Jewish people went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows in mere moments. This completely contradicts our starting principle which states that spiritual falls, while they may occur, will occur slowly in small steps. So how did this happen? How did they fall so quickly? Some commentaries such as the Ramban and Rav Yehuda Halevi and Sefer Kuzari, suggest that the Jewish people didn't commit true idolatry. Rather, after Moshe Rabbeinu failed to descend from Harsinai, the Jewish people believed that their leader, who served as the medium of connection between them and Hashem, was gone forever. In desperation, they attempted to create a new physical medium of connection, the golden calf. And this idea itself is not inherently wrong because as we see in just a few partios, the Jews were told to build an Aron, the Aron HaKodesh. A physical vessel to serve as a connection between them and Hashem. The Aron had two Kruvim, cherubs, on top of them and the Torah states explicitly that Hashem spoke to Moshe through the Kruvim. The Ramban and Rav Yehuda Halevi therefore explained that the problem was not the motive but the method of achieving their goal. Because Hashem did not command them to do it, and that would be one answer to our problem. However, many commentaries, including Rashi, believe that the Chayta Ega was genuine idolatry, that immediately following Ma'an Torah, the Jewish people fell prey to the worst sin imaginable, Avodah Zarah. They failed to source themselves back to Hashem, the very essence of idolatry. So according to this line of thinking, we are back to our original problem. How did the Jewish people, who had achieved such great spiritual heights, undergo such a rapid, and tremendous fall. 
spiritual falls tend to occur slowly in small steps. In this case, however, the Jewish people went straight from top to bottom, from high to low, from angelic to broken. How did this happen? In Mirtav Meliahu, Revelyahu Dessler analyzes one of the foundational underlying concepts of human experience. He explains that while human beings have free will, the locus of free will, the Nekudas Habechira, exists only at specific points, unique to each of us. The average person does not struggle with the desire to push down an old lady on the street and steal her purse. And similarly, most of us do not feel an overwhelming compulsion to murder. We do not live at such a base level and we have no desire to, but at the same time, most of us are not yet at the level where we are attempting to have complete control over every thought that enters our minds or to refrain from speaking a single unnecessary word. We simply do not live on such a heightened level of existence. We are not living on this angelic and transcendent plane. Most of humanity falls somewhere in the middle. Our point of free will is located in the decision sphere of whether or not to gossip, to hit snooze, to give charity, to smile, to eat right. These are the battles of inches. And with these, sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. Each time that we confront one of these challenges, we engage in this internal battle. On the outside, we may give nothing away. But within each of our minds exists a brutal battle for spiritual ground, a battle of will, a battle for eternity. If we push hard enough at one of these fronts, they will eventually become second nature. And what was once a struggle will become a constant victory. But if we lose the battle, we move back a step or two. But this battle is constant, a series of tiny gains and losses. None of these has a major impact on our spiritual level, but if we garner enough of these successes, we can maintain steady progress forward. This road is a slow one, but if we continue to push, we slowly grow. And the same is true about spiritual falls, slow and steady. However, there is one exception to this model. When you lose your identity, your sense of self, you can go from great to nothing in an instant. You don't climb down the rungs of the ladder one at a time. You skip all the rungs completely and go from top to bottom in a split second. This is because the battle of will includes two forces. Your higher self, which tries to raise you up, and your lower self, which tries to drag you down. And normally these two are pushing in full force, leading to the constant battle for inches in the journey of growth. Sometimes your higher self gains ground, sometimes your lower self does. However, in times of panic, 
moments of emotional or psychological instability, an instance of complete self-doubt, we tend to completely fall apart. In these moments, you completely lose your sense of identity. You lose with it your entire sense of purpose and foundation of self. Your positive force of will disappears and all that's left in its wake is the overwhelming drive of the lower self. And in this rare instance, your lower self asserts its influence and therefore there is nothing left to push back against it. And the results are cataclysmic. You're, you will plummet faster than you imagine possible into the very lowest state of existence. And now we can explain what happened to the Jewish people. It's true that the Jewish people were on the highest level imaginable. They had just witnessed Hashem himself and had received the Torah on Har Sinai, yet they lost their sense of identity, their sense of self, their very foundation. They thought that Moshe, their leader, had just died. After the Jewish people went through the transcendent experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and Ma'an Torah, they truly were on the highest level imaginable. They just experienced open, open revelation and had cemented their special spiritual bond with Hashem, their Creator. However, immediately following this, they underwent a challenge that shook their world, that robbed them of their identity, their, their sense of self, their very foundation. When Moshe failed to descend the mountain, the Jewish people believed that they had lost their teacher, their leader, who had just taken them out of Egypt to receive Hashem's Torah. Moshe served as their link to these events, and when he disappeared, they felt as though they had been cut off from that which made them great. When they experienced this loss of identity, they experienced a moment of sheer panic, internal chaos, and lost all sense of self with such a negative force and no positive force pushing back. They fell straight from greatness to the lowest depths and did the unthinkable. They served idolatry, a complete abandon of their entire spiritual ideals. The worst part of these dramatic thoughts is that once it begins, it's very hard, in fact, seemingly impossible to halt its progress. Even after a small failure, many people tend to give up. They fail but they make the mistake of branding themselves as a failure. They mistaken their action of failure as a new identity, a personification of failure. Now, when they look in the mirror, they see failure. This is the brilliant strategy of our Yitzhahara. He hits you while you're already down. Once we slip up, he grabs the opportunity to convince us that we are a failure. And this is the explanation of the Pasuk and Mishnah, that a tzaddik falls seven times and rises. We all fall. The key to greatness is not preventing the fall, since it's all but guaranteed to happen at some point in our lives. The key to greatness is how we respond when we fall. A Russia, a sinner, is someone who falls once but never picks himself up. One slip turns into a snowballing cascade, an eternal tumble into increasingly darker states of existence. He therefore continues to endlessly fall deeper and deeper into the abyss of nothingness. Sadik, however, 
catches his fall. He stumbles, as we all do, but he fights to find his footing, regains composure, redirects his consciousness, and then begins to climb again. Like a cat who always lands on its feet, a great person always positions himself to bounce back from a fall. He is not great despite having fallen seven times. He is great because of them. These falls helped him learn more about who he was, trained him to persevere, and brought out aspects of his potential that he never even knew existed. To push forward in life, to embrace the internal battle of will that exists within each of us, and to rise up every time we fall. We will fall! We will fall! That is not the question. The question is whether we'll get back up or get depressed. Whether we'll learn from it or beat ourselves up. Whether we'll rebuild momentum or tumble endlessly into nothingness. Let's choose greatness. Let's assert our willpower. And let's endlessly strive for more.